Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Moniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. If you are within the sound of my voice and you haven't visited beenawake.com and subscribe with your email address, can I ask you to do that today, if you would be so kind? The show is available on all of your favorite podcatchers. Of course, the host is out of Substack, so if you want to download the Substack app, kind of cool. They just added like a new feature where I don't know how recently. I don't always use. I, I a lot of times use the browser version, but um. <clears throat> anyway, recently they they added a feature where it has like an auto reader. So in the Substack app, you can actually listen to the individual articles. It's not me narrating it, uh, but it's a nice feature because a lot of times people say they don't want to read, and I understand that, I suppose. But hey, you know, part of the whole part of this whole process is the writing. So I appreciate people who do enjoy both the podcast and the articles, and that's exactly what we're going to do today. We have a couple of articles to go over, um, uh, both that I wrote. Um, they're pulling from some ma- couple of major news stories that might seem disconnected, but in that we take a bigger picture view, and an even bigger picture almost seems like it almost seems hacked to say cuz a lot of people talk about like wanting to take a bigger a bigger picture there's a certain what i what i try to demonstrate in the show and what i try to demonstrate in my writing is that there's different ways in which one can interpret the news cycle and if you and if you like you can think of interpreting the news cycle as the better sense making the news being accounts of what happened in different places of the world is that an effective definition of news i'm not quite sure but that's what but that's but that's the idea behind um uh, behind the idea of better sense making on this show right it's not quite it's not just about the facts it's about how do you interpret facts and if you know and then how that then forms opinion and also analyzing the way narratives are and what is um so there's there's there is a through connection between the two stories we're going to talk about. Maybe get to a third one depending on how time allows for. There is a through line between the two of them, uh, even though at first you might not you might not think so. So the two stories that we wanted that I want to talk about. One, of course, uh, given given just just because I'm putting this out quickly, and you know to be a little timely is commenting on this. Um, Commenting on the killing or the reaction to the killing of Ty, really the reaction to the killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, of course, this past weekend, you know, we're in we're at the end of January 2023. This past weekend, cities across the country uh, prepared and boarded up shops and in, in, because they feared unrest uh, due to this police killing. So we're going to talk about that story, um, kind of take an examination of how of how it's being covered and it's being talked about and how it plays into major central themes that we see on display in popular, uh, in, in popular progressive narratives. And then the other story that we're going to talk about is something that had, uh, that had the at least right half, if you will, of the media of the news media sphere, um, 
a, 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 a buzz recently. And that was, of course, the spat, the back and forth. I don't know. Let's, what, what are we going to call it exactly between the Daily Wire uh, and really, really the Daily Wire, everybody, because I think I think eventually as time went on, more and more of the personalities uh, jumped in. But between the Daily Wire and Steven Crowder. Uh, so we're going to get into that story. Now, that now, again, they might seem a little disconnected. Uh, but I think if you stick with me through to the end of the episode, you'll see what I uh, why I think they are worth talking about together, besides the fact that I wrote them uh, back to back today. So. Before we do that. Uh, want to just once again thank everybody for listening to the show do me a favor again if you will uh, share the show with a friend share the website with a friend share an article give me a retweet follow on twitter all social media at the lb Muniz. and if you would be so kind consider becoming a uh, a supporting patron um, right now that gives you access to all the archives right now you only get the last four months for free available of content so it gives you access to the full archives it helps me cover the cost of running a show like this and uh, lets me know that people really value the work here and gives gives me the uh, motivation to dedicate more and more of my time to it without further ado there was another police uh there was another really another video because i don't think th- this happened months ago as, as often these cases do but there was a police killing in memphis tennessee and I, you know, I did watch the video. Um, I didn't, I guess I could have watched more of it, but from w- what I did see, it seemed pretty, you know, pretty bad. It's not fun to watch snuff films. It's kind of bad how it's kind of bad how desensitized a lot of us, I think, have become to seeing death on video. It was not something common growing up. And now, um, now, of course, you can you easily depend if you follow the right Twitter accounts, you'll see people, unfortunately, who get you know hurt and and, and in some cases uh, die. So anyway, but so it, it was it was pretty brutal. I mean, from what I could tell, the guy was mildly resisting, and there was there was one moment where the police officer grabs his baton and has the has to the two other officers hold the guy's arms and just like hits him. And you can make a lot of, you know, like people make people, of course, made comparisons between this killing and the killing of George Floyd and certain and you can make a lot of excuses uh, in the case of George uh, of, of uh, Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd, um, or at least as far as the court is, you know, he has his appeal coming up. So we'll see what happens there. It's, it is possible for the court system to be political. Right. That this that's something we have to understand about our age. It's an age of total politics, which means that everything is political. It wasn't that that's not the world that I want to live in. That's not the world that I have I wish I spent my twenties wishing we could uh we could escape from, but it is the but it, it just is the world that we are today. So so we have to understand that even even the court system is political. But I again just watching this video, I Innocent until proven guilty. I'll, I'll hold true to that ideal, but I, it's it'll be interesting to see what kind of a defense can be levied against uh, uh, all these different officers. And and there's nothing again in this, especially in this particular context, there was nothing fun about watching um, about watching somebody get beaten within half their uh, life. So let's read the piece. Um, and the so, but it, what was it? What's it, what what's most interesting about this story, perhaps, is that people are rightly upset right here because we're supposed to care that's that's what that's what we were told we're supposed to care about police brutality people are rightly upset and worried about what about the fact that this occurred 
but that but there was a there's a problem with the narrative because of course the reason why there's a problem with policing in the United States is because of a, is because of systemic racism and you know broader broad, more broadly speaking the white supremacy that's what, at least what you're told from well frankly all all the way on up to the president of the president of the United States all the way up to the president of the United States people are making that call and they're saying that these sorts of things are the result and the fault of white what they call racism and white supremacy and that the police forces are inherently racist. But in this case, and this is what this is what this is what will make the case interesting, and that's why we're covering it. All four of the officers involved happen to be black. And as it happens, the chief of police in Memphis is also black. And yet we still had a killing like this occur. Now, in my digging for the piece that I didn't really talk about in the article. apparently these officers were part of something called Scorpio. And Scorpio was some sort of acronym about like taking our streets back. So these were like special teams. It was a dedicated unit that would infiltrate. I would assumably were high, uh, were higher crime areas and they would be more aggressive with violent offenders. Those were the words, at least, that I read in an AP report. Because now, of course, this unit has been suspended. So we'll kind of think about that as we read through the piece. And what I wanted to cover in particular about this story is how the spin, how the narrative, what what narrative control is being used in order to maintain in order to maintain the ideology that racism and white supremacy are at the root of most of America's problems of today, especially with police. Now, because we're not going to talk about the minutia of policing in America, because guess what? There are a lot of problems with policing in America. There's a lot of perverse incentives that have been put into place by different uh, bills and different you know laws over the years. So if we want to have a talk about reform, if we want to have a talk about how policing is different, or if we even want to have a talk about the history of policing itself, we can we can do that. But that's not working. But that's not the conversation we're going to have today. Today, we're having a conversation about why black cops are now racist. So Van Jones recently penned an opinion column at CNN entitled Opinion. The police who killed Tyree Nichols were black, but they might still have been driven by racism. So as we were just talking about, police in Memphis, Tennessee, released graphic footage of four officers beating a man in their custody to death. The officers involved are no longer on the force and have been charged with murder, among other charges. With the release of the footage, cities braced for unrest, and many media outlets have framed this as another example of systemic racism and white supremacy found in American police departments. This being argued despite all the officers involved were also black, as well as the Memphis chief of police. So let's examine how this can be. We're going to walk, now we're going to walk through Van Jones's article. So Jones opens his piece by remembering the LA riots and the televised beatings of Rodney King by four white officers before pivoting to the case of Tyree Nichols killed by four black officers. According to Jones, quote, the narrative White cops kills unarmed black man should have never been the sole lens through which we attempted to understand police abuse and misconduct. It's time to move to a more nuanced discussion of the way police violence endangers black lives. 
Oh, okay. So he wants to introduce nuance. He goes on to say that anti-black opinions can be held by black people just as easily as they can be held by white people. This is to say black people can still be victims of white supremacy and racist thought, concluding, quote, at the end of the day, it is the race of the victim who is brutalized, not the race of the violent cop that is most relevant in determining whether racial bias is a factor in police violence. It's hard to imagine five cops of any color beating a white person to death under similar circumstances. And it is almost impossible to imagine five black cops giving a white arrestee the kind of beatdown that Nichols allegedly received. Now, let's stop there for a second. I'm not somebody I, I, I'm not like a cop lock page. I'm not a free thought project. You can go to those places. They do a very good job and have for many years of documenting police abuse. And. I can. There are plenty of cases that you can point to, if you do a little bit of research and digging, that involve police officers beating white people within inches of their life, and in some cases, killing them as well. Not this particular one. I will say there was a particular, there there was a particular rawness to this clip, um, it, that 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 uh, that stood out from other videos that I had watched. Everybody seemed really really amped up. Uh, but but even so, the, we know this. We know that this had happened. Now, what's interesting? Yeah, he says five cops of any color beating a white person to death under similar circumstances. And again, what constitutes a similar circumstance? Now, to to be fair, I guess part of it is because this just stopped with a simple traffic stop and then managed to escalate until somebody died. So th- there's a there's there are problems there. I would say. Uh, especially if especially because there's no I feel like the police department would have released evidence if there was evidence in, in favor of the of the officers. And certainly they wouldn't have been fired so quickly and charged with murder unless the evidence was uh, the, the evidence was how you say overwhelming. Um, and, and maybe I'm making an assumption. Right. But we're working with the information that has been that has been given to us. But according to Van Jones, you can't you that that wouldn't happen. But of course it has. Right. And he's doing this because he's trying to influence you in a particular direction. In short, racial animus can still be a factor, even when the perpetrators are all black. And that's especially true if these actions are part of a broader pattern and practice within the Memphis Police Department. It's a sad fact, but one that's as old as time itself. People people often oppress people who look just like them. The vast majority of human rights abuses are committed by people who look exactly like the people they are abusing. Jones ends his piece arguing more oversight is needed in police departments regardless of the race of their officers or else, quote, we'll continue to see stomach-churning acts of police violence against black men by cops of every color. I thought it was interesting. It's always interesting what... It's always interesting how how in these pieces and and it's always and it's interesting from the standpoint of how you can interpret facts in different ways. The the degree to which right here that he says he knows and he you know it it is a historical truism that oftentimes that oftentimes that uh, human rights abuses are committed by people who look exactly like the people that they are abusing. Which is to say that there's nothing which is to say that it is something human violence is within all of humanity that's what i'm trying to say violence is within all of humanity it's not just with it's not just across racial groups basic crime statistics show that most crime most crime is uh 
is to my knowledge, most crime happens between ethnic groups. It is it is actually rare that killings happen outside of ethnic groups. And so therefore it is the fact that, you know, most of the people who are doing these sorts of crimes in neighborhoods that the high crime neighborhoods with minority populations are being done by other minorities of that population. So Van Jones can recognize this part, but it still needs to fit within that overarching narrative, that modern day narrative of racism. A similar sentiment, because it wasn't just it wasn't just Van Jones. Black Lives Matters also Black Lives Matter also issued a statement, though ha- though they had a more radical conclusion, quoting five police officers brutally beat Tyree to death. Although the media has spent a great amount of time drawing attention to the fact that the police officers are black, as if that is important, let us be clear. All police represent the interest of capitalism and impel state-sanctioned violence. Anyone who works within a system that perpetuates state-sanctioned violence is complicit in upholding white supremacy. Assimilation into a system that is anti-black is one of the most dangerous weapons stemming from white supremacy. This moment affirms what we've known all along. Reform doesn't work. Incremental progress is too slow. Diversifying a police department will not work. No police department, no matter how diverse, can ever overcome the reality that it is a direct descendant of slave patrols. Police will never keep our communities safe. Our call to defund the police includes ending traffic stops for minor traffic violations and removing police from traffic interactions. Well, that was, you know, so so while Van Jones calls for reform, you know, Black Lives Matter, at least, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation is calling for abolition. What there was a few points in here that I thought were interesting, right? You'll notice that they throw capitalism into the equation, you know, right? That, that capitalism and and the idea of state sanctioned violence is I thought was kind of interesting, especially from a libertarian lens and the similarity therein but they say anyone who works within a system that perpetuates state sanctioned violence is complicit in upholding white supremacy and they are therefore assimilated into a system that is anti-black now if you've been subscribed to this website beenawake.com you should be familiar with the concept of narrative discipline that i've talked about a few times and funny enough i actually i thought i think somebody else was talking about this idea recently so it was a cool example of parallel thinking um the boundaries of debate this is this is my definition of narrative discipline what i'm trying to talk about the boundaries of debate are clearly set so players know where not to tread when those boundaries prove to be inaccurate you may change them but only by establishing new boundaries that no one may step outside this is to say narrative discipline is the means by which the press and government set what an acceptable opinion is now i talked about this um in the beginning is it related to COVID narratives and a lot of the COVID narratives that, um, well, you know, ba- well, basically what we all lived through that, in, that if you were paying attention on Twitter, you were about six months ahead of what an acceptable opinion was six months to a year and things that would get you banned at one point in time, wouldn't get you banned later. Once enough time had passed to where the, to where the mainstream narrative had a court had in- incorporated it into their, um, into their narrative into their larger i guess their larger narrative would be the way of putting it right 
at some point you have to admit the truth, but you admit the truth on your scale, on your time scale, not on the time scale that it is believed. And you can use this as like a bungee effect. This is the interesting thing that happens because there's that asymmetry. So you have the person who's paying attention to the news cycle and looking closely at these stories, and they discover something that hasn't really been corroborated across many news outlets yet. And then by the time it does become by the time it does become major news, they're already on to the next thing. And so there's this interesting bungee effect where at the end of the day, if you were to go back in time and look at it, you would say, oh, look, they admitted to these things like the possibility of the lab leak hypothesis, for example, the fact that the the fact that the uh, that 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 the treatment given to people doesn't actually prevent transmission of the disease, even though they said it would that, that they said it would. All these sorts of things were theorized, hypothesized, given some evidence and some support at one point in time, but it wasn't allowed to be accepted as a narrative. It wasn't allowed to be accepted as fact. We're also seeing this in regards right now to the Twitter files. Unless you are already committed to the idea of the story, that you're curious at the degree to which big tech is colluding with the federal government and how platforms like Twitter possibly, well, not possibly, definitely impacted the 2020 election. And Facebook and Meta, you know, Meta and Google as well. But Twitter in particular, because of its because of the heavy concentration of media personalities and people who are ostensibly trying to sway opinion. That hasn't received a lot of coverage in the major press. So unless you're already invested in the story, you probably haven't heard about it or it's worth and easy enough to ignore. That's narrative discipline. And so they need. And so when a story like this happens where so where a crime occurred, right, that's why these guys are being charged with a crime ostensibly is because a murder happened. That's what the state is going to try to prove in court. Because that happened, people are outraged. And they've been given programming, right, for certain cases of what to do in these situations. But again, there's a problem because it doesn't quite fit in with the narrative. And, and so even though there is an injustice, people look at the situation and they ask the honest question. So let's continue reading the piece. The beating of Tyree Nichols. <clears throat> I really, I you know, it's funny. I haven't, I've just been reading about the story. I haven't listened to many people talk about it. So I really hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, seemed to show an unjust killing. While the trial of the officers will give us a fuller picture, it is at least understandable why people would be upset. There's just one problem. It doesn't seem to fit the broader narrative. After all, if white supremacy and racism are to blame, how can the offenders be black? Jones and the BLM expand the parameters of acceptable opinion while maintaining ideological coherence by removing the blackness from the officers involved. Per Jones, they are themselves a kind of victim turning on their own. And per BLM, by being police officers, they no longer have claim to oppression and therefore are perpetrators of it. I'll admit the video of the beating was difficult to watch. There's very little fun in watching a seemingly innocent person being beaten within an inch of his life by the police. What I find even more distasteful is how in the current media climate, one can't even feel sorry because someone died. Both Van Jones and BLM are heavily influenced by a Marxist perspective that sorts everyone between oppressed and oppressor. While oftentimes this puts it in racial terms, this is put in racial terms, it is not a betrayal of the underlying philosophy to expand the category. It matters very little whether people see through the ruse. 
Your belief is not required, only your compliance. As I quip to a friend who sent me the BLL statement, Kami's going to Kami. So what does that mean, Kami's going to Kami? I gave this the subtitle of a meta-examination of media narratives because this really isn't about the facts of the case. This A story like this is about the ideas that underlie the facts of the case. And the fact of the and 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 in this particular instance, we're talking about um, we're we're talking about the broader, the broader Marx, the broader woke narrative that everything in the world is the fault of white Americans in particular, white men, depending on how specific you want to get. That there is systemic racism throughout our system, and that even though members of other ethnicities and races have managed to climb to the highest levels of office, it's still is something that affects everyday life. And you have to believe that. It doesn't matter if you want to fix things. Remember, I started this by saying that I that, that there I, I will have plenty of ideas about how policing could be done better from many different from, from different perspectives. It is true that in some that, that there's over policing in some neighborhoods. Now a lot of times that's that overpolicing is actually desired by the population. That's something that's not usually talked about in the broader narrative. But why is it not? Because it's not about wanting to, it's not enough to want to reform the police. You have to believe the police are racist and then reform them or abolish them. Because it's about the meta narrative. It's about the underlying assumptions that you don't even feel you ever need to discuss because they are so apparent. That is the modern woke dominant narrative that at the core of everything where there is a difference, oppression is involved because it's based on the ideas that go back that, that go back all the way to Marx and really before Marx. You can, but it was certainly, it, it, but, but in particular Marx and other proto-Marxist thinkers developed these ideas in the late 19th into the early 20th century. And you, and, and what you have to understand, even if you're somebody like me who who understands precisely why economically speaking Marxism is ridiculous and why socially speaking Marxism is ridiculous, it's not scientific. It has no it it has everything to do it has everything and it is it is it it, it, it invariably turns into a religion unto itself, and it has nothing it, it it's it's in a foundation built on sand. That's one of the reasons why the narrative has to change so much and why it doesn't really, you know, comport to reality. Again, there's other, re- there's other, you know, it's not just the fact that people are oppressed. And it's not just the fact that racism exists. It's a multivariant analysis and it's complicated. But people don't like complicated answers. They like simple answers, especially in a democracy where you have, where the masses get to suppose, supposedly choose their leaders so a simple narrative takes hold a lot easier and a lot and people are down with the cause and again it's very easy for the passerby especially when you especially when you know especially when this narrative dominates major popular outlets it was what you were taught in school so why else why would you believe anything else you understand for the person who's not particularly interested in following politics or, ha- or, or, or having philosophical discussions, they see something that looks wrong and they want to change it. 
in the simple oppressor oppressed narrative works where, where you 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 and you can see that you can actually see this replicated in some elements on the right right like the manosphere people tend to do this the men's rights people in my opinion do this right where you take all you are is the reflection of feminism that's all that's all you've accomplished because you because you're trying to you're you're, you're looking at a one thing you're looking at one thing that's actually two it's not it's not men or women it's us together surviving across you know arguably tens of thousands of years so we'll see what happens with this story uh, i i think there was some minor i mean there was mostly peaceful protests is what i saw reported but i also saw i also saw people shutting down highways and stuff like that it didn't really i don't think it happened anything here around the side of chicago cuz we had a lot of snow this weekend so you know there's really this is one of those things that the winter is going to have an effect on this to where, you know, all these officers are getting charged. So we probably won't see crazy riots. It'll just be interesting to see how this is played up come May and June, uh, especially when there might, especially when they're in, inevitably somewhere in this country, there will be some other police involved shooting or police involved death. Again, I think, I think the fact that this one was so graphic has a lot to do with why it caught, it caught the narrative. And obviously, you know, for, for some people, I'm sure there was uh, property damage. All right, let's move on to the second piece that I want to talk about today. For the sake of the movement, uh, this is the Daily Wire versus Crowder. Actually, I, I'm, I'm kind of happy with how that graphic turned out. Um, so if your media consumption leans right, then you've seen headlines about Steven Crowder and the Daily Wire trading sound bites about a contract off a contract offer going wrong. So Steven Crowder, who has one of the most popular independent YouTube channels for conservative commentary and comedy, released a video calling big quote big con to task. During the video, he details punitive measures incorporated into an offer given to him by what was later to revealed to be the Daily Wire. An ensuing back and forth between Crowder and the Daily Wire and its talent took over much of the popular news cycle. Crowder is, argue, is arguing that being penalized, that by penalizing creative talent, if they are demonetized on platforms like YouTube and Facebook outlets like the Daily Wire are doing, man, I should have bro, I should have uh, proofread the sentence. Crowder is arguing that by penalizing creative talent, if they're demonetized on platforms like YouTube and Facebook. Places like the Daily Daily Wire are doing the bidding of big tech. Crowder further argues that for cons- for the conservative movement to succeed, creators have to feel emboldened to run afoul of the community standards established by YouTube and other platforms. Companies in the conservative space, therefore, should have a business model that allows for this. The Daily Wire, who outed themselves as the company with said provisions, have pointed to the fact that their offer was open to negotiation and was for $50 million. Their business model relies on advertising, and so these seemingly punitive measures are put into place so that creator and company sink or swim together. In other words, it's just business. So plenty of people have weighed in on the specifics of the term sheet and what they think is acceptable and what they think is not. I mean, really quickly, so while we're on the show, I mean, you know, they offered him a contract for $50 million over four years. He would maintain the rights to a lot of his stuff. But yeah, there were these clauses that basically said if they couldn't run advertising on YouTube or on other or on Facebook, for example, that what they would do is they would they would uh, penalize him a certain like 10 percent 
of what he would be getting paid out a month. And it was like, and for, for at least for what they had offered initially, it would be like a million dollars a month. So instead of getting a million dollars a month, you would get 850,000, let's say. Now, of course, to most of us sitting here, 50, talking about $50 million over four years is like the opportunity of a lifetime. And so I think people, a lot of people rightfully, and what was interesting about this is that the Daily Wire did out themselves. Crowder had it all blacked out and people were people were speculating as to who it was. We're going to get back to that later in the piece. I wanted to, I, I have some theories about why things played out the way they did. But the Daily Wire chose to out themselves and said, yeah, we wrote this contract. This was the offer and everything was up for negotiation. So, but what I want to what I wanted to focus on in the piece, trying to bring something else to the fore, was the narrative tension between matters of business and matters of belief. See, especially when we're talking about writing and talking about ideas and politics, a lot of people will talk about will will talk a big game about principle and and caring about ideas over money or over politics. A lot of people talk a big game about that. Crowder defending his position on Timcast IRL said many times that his decision wasn't about money. It was about ideas. So much so that he was willing to walk away from $50 million contract negotiations. The vision he lays out is an ecosystem where young creators who aren't as fiercely tied to their independence as Crowder was don't censor themselves for fear of losing compensation. The reply from young creators at the Daily Wire, well, Brett Cooper said her contract didn't have the same kind of provisions and having access to the mentorship for more experienced talent at the Daily Wire is well worth, is well in excess of what her compensation gives her. Outlets like the Daily Wire claim rightfully to be one of the largest platforms in the conservative right-leaning media space. Expanding beyond news and commentary to include documentaries and fictional movies, it may seem obvious then that a scrappy, independent creator like Crowder is the David fighting the proverbial Goliath. But that, too, really is a matter of belief. So when you go back and forth and you listen to Crowder's passion, and I'm not, as I get into here, I'm not doubting his passion. I'm not doubting for, I'm not doubting really at all, as far as I can tell. He does seem to care. But it's still a matter of belief to think that it's David and Goliath. You know, there are young there are creators that I'm sure prefer something like the Daily Wire. It's kind of a choice. Some creators, there are people like like Crowder who make it who have made it a point to try and be as independent as possible. And then there are people who go from paycheck to paycheck. And then there are people who you know. And then there's a lot of us who have a career doing something other than other than content creation and writing and producing ideas. And so that also gives us a certain liberty, right? That's kind of, that's one of the things is I can be a little more, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not plugged into these circles yet. So it gives you, it gives you a different kind of perspective and there's insulation from that as well. It's a lot different when you, and I don't take ads, right? I, I, I ask for your donations if you'd like, but I don't take advertisement on this show. And I've kind of decided to do that because when you do, and you know, maybe one day, one maybe one day this show will have some kind of advertising. But when you do take advertising, you know, you are a little bit beholden to people. And also that stream, once that income stream comes in, you don't really want to give it up. Everybody always wants more money. The reality is, no matter how ideologically driven someone is. No matter how much belief is at the core of their being, 
business interests must be taken into account. While it is certainly worth discussing why conservative and right-wing creators burn out of the larger corporate outlets, that doesn't change the fact that Crowder has business interests to pursue and employees to protect, ideologically driven as he may be. Personally, I don't think Crowder intended to go to war with the Daily Wire, but I think he was willing to use their turn sheet in order to help him launch his business to its next phase. I don't see that as a conflict between what he's saying. Chances are he believes he can help shape the growing modern conservative or right-wing media landscape. One of the earliest sentences written at binawake.com was, Categorization is a useful tool, but unlike rocks and plants, human ideas are not so easily separated from one another. Writers and creators, including your author, will often make references to the right or conservatives or, you know, Americans, libertarians, and so on. Many people like to see this as one collect connected movement of people opposing the left. However, <clears throat> however, the reality is the defining characteristic of whether somebody is of the right is that they are opposed to the left. While not a monolith, the left is able to operate more efficiently because their mission is the same, maintain power and achieve progress. What is progress? What the people in power decide it is. After all, everyone is down for the cause. The right doesn't manifest the same cohesion because it is still not cohesive. They do not hold much institutional or popular power. Mainstream conservatism was split by Donald Trump's presidency. For example, elected Congressman Matt Gates and Dan Crenshaw both call them, would call themselves conservative, yet they have very different perspectives on what that means. And as you move farther away from mainstream sources, this trend manifests itself continually. Many people in this media space will pay lip surface to the idea of creating culture while never really defining what that is beyond watching their show going to their events, and buying their products. As a creator, it is sound advice for one to cultivate a sense of community with your supporters. This creates positive feedback and helps you retain and grow an audience. As a media personality, you put out a formulation of ideas to attract people to your platform. So while there are multiple communities in this media space with overlapping audiences, there is no unity in movement, only opposition. As this becomes more apparent in the run-up to the 2024 election, it will be interesting to see whether a culture and a coalition can actually come together. We're at a point where Black Bloc communists, Antifa, can operate in most major American cities. And maybe not, forget, forget qualifying most, because I was going to qualify most for a minute. They are operating in many, in most American cities. Black Lives Matter activists who are run by trained Marxists are also operating in major U.S. cities. And when something, when something, when something happens that they feel is unjust, they can get people in the street. They can shut down highways. They can go after federal buildings. That's, that's where the left is currently. And it's reinforced, of course. It's reinforced by people in power. 
where does that happen on the right? Now, of course, you can you can point to many different things, and you could point to, to the fact that a lot of times people are put into jail. You can point you can point to the fact that Obama's IRS <coughs> basically gutted the nonprofit movement. You can point to many factors, and I'm not I'm not I would grant you all of them, but that's precisely my point. We're still in a stage of politics, I would argue, where the right is is unified not in movement but in opposition, as I say in the piece. Everybody knows what the problem is, but nobody's quite sure. But not enough people agree, because we're under a broadly democratic system. And certainly not enough people with money agree of what the proper direction is to go next. We had the libertarian moment. That ended up not being as great, that great. Well, it, you know, there was maybe some benefits to it, but the point being... It ended up not being the best course of action because why? Because it was able to be co-opted to where, to where, to where Ron Paul was right about everything, but people still blame libertarians for free trade deals and things and and things of that nature. Because again, it was, it was, it was, it wasn't, uh, because it didn't matter what narrative, what meta narrative was on top of it. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Uh, don't forget to follow me on all social media out there at the LB Muniz. If you like what you heard today, go to inawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Muniz. And I am not one with the woke.